0: It's time for some Russian gulag bullsh. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story.
1: Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are!
0: I don't know who you are, or where you came from. from. now on, you do as I can. Okay? Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet and Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. This time around, I am sticking with the same storyline from last episode, which is the Joes in Captivity story that began in G.I. Joe number 61 and continued into G.I. Joe Special Missions number six. This will be part three, and I'll be looking at G.I. Joe, real American hero, number 62, which came out in May 12th, 2017, and had a cover price of $1 U.S., $1.25 Canadian, and 40 p in the U.K., which means that if Andy Leland finds this in a 50p bin, he would make Professor Allen very, very unhappy. Hail Doom. Anyway... Our story is called Transit, and our creative team is as follows. The writer was Larry Hama. Pencils were by Arvell Jones, who penciled pages 1, 7, and 13 through 22. And William Johnson penciled pages 2 through 6 and 8 through 12. Andy Mashinsky handled all of the inking duties. Coloring was by Bob Sharon. Joe Rosen lettered. Bob Harris was the editor, and Jim Shooter was your editor-in-chief. The cover is by Mike Zek, and it shows Stalker, Quick Kick, and Snow Job being held at gunpoint out of a train and into a prison camp. Now, my trade, which is the IDW trade, does not have any of the stuff that was in the barcode area. It does not even have the Marvel logo in the box in the upper left-hand corner. But I distinctly remember that the UPC box at the bottom left-hand corner had the symbol for libraries. It's a person reading a book and it said, 1987, the year of the reader. Support your local library, people. I did. Cover, by the way, is a solid one. It's not as flat out awesome as the previous issue's cover, but it references the story that's on the inside and also reflects the issue's dramatic tension. It's also better artwork than what's inside, which is not horrible, but is inconsistent for the most part. But before I get to my review, let's get through the summary. We open in the People's Tribunal courtroom in the capital of the People's Democratic Republic of Borovia. Quick Kick, Snow Job and Stalker have essentially been found guilty in a show trial and have been sentenced to five consecutive life sentences doing hard labor. They are then led outside, where they are spit on and pelted with tomatoes while be herding into a transport, all of which is shown on the evening news which is being watched by Roadblock, Beachhead, Mutt and Junkyard, Spirit, Leatherneck, and Wild Bill. A chopper lands, and the passenger inside is Outback, who is returned safely from Barovia. Outback heads to his bunk. Leatherneck angrily questions why he's the only one who's returned, implying that he deserted the other men, and he even threatens him. Outback responds to that threat by pulling a knife. Grunt then calls from his dorm room at Georgia Tech, and he tells Roadblock that he's been watching the news and he's dismayed to hear that there we no rescue mission, and he stares sadly at a picture of himself, Clutch, Stalker, and Snake Eyes. In Barovia, our three captured Joes have been loaded into cattle cars and are traveling to the Gulag, where they are attacked and defended themselves against the other inmates. In Denver, Jinx trains Billy, and he proves to be very good. He sees that Jinx has the same tattoo as Snake Eyes and Storm Shadows and asks about it forcefully. Then the Blind Master shows him a class portrait of sorts. In it are the Hard Master and the Soft Master, who are both dead. Himself, Jinx's little girl, Storm Shadow, Snake Eyes, and two other men. A Smith, named Onihashi and his assistant, whose face is blurred. The Blind Master points out that Jinx is actually Storm Shadow's second cousin on his mother's side, and now it's time for Jinx to take Billy to San Francisco to train him further. Outside the dojo in the alley between that building and Fred's garage, Fred and Raptor return from burying Cobra Commander. Jinx and Billy then pull out in the Blind Master's car, and Raptor spots them, follows them, and he leaves Fred behind. In Barovia, the train arrives at the stop. A guard throws in two loaves of bread and a pail of water. The prisoners are ready to kill one another over them, and then Stalker takes charge, distributes the rations equally, and then helps one of the prisoners who tried to steal Snowjob's shoes earlier. The prisoner doesn't understand why they keep helping him, and Stalker explains that there is essentially a way of keeping his humanity and self-respect. Raptor continues to chase Billy and Jinx on the interstate outside of Denver, and they more or less lose him. He decides to use his birds to track them instead. At the army base in Utah, where the Joes are stationed, Leatherneck doesn't buy the story that Stalker told Outback to get back to America. Roadblock explains that an order is an order, and then Gung Ho pops up to tell them that they can hear them jawing at one another all the way down on level three, implying that there's much more to this base in Utah than what we're seeing. In Barovia... The Joes arrive at the Gulag Depot and the situation seems dire. In San Francisco, Billy and Jinx arrive and head for the Presidio and the Defense Language Center, which Billy balks at, but Jinx tells him to be patient. All the while, Raptor is watching them and says that he's got some information that Cobra might really be interested in now. You know, I remember back in 1987 not liking this issue very much. I didn't hate it or anything, but I remember that when I read the letter column, that referred to this comic book. So that would have been about three or four issues later. A number of people wrote in to talk about how they loved how dramatic it was. My beef was that I really, it really didn't have very much action. But at nine years old, I didn't understand dramatic tension, nor did I understand what goes into moving along a multi-plot, multi-faceted storyline. Because if you think about it, you have two, maybe three storylines going here at once. First, you have the stalker quick kick snow Job outback storyline. Second, you have the Cobra Commander-Fred-Raptor-Billy storyline. Third, kind of lurking in the background, is the continuing storyline of, of the Joes not having a permanent headquarters after the destruction of the Pit back in issue 53. Since Hama has an endgame for at least one of these storylines in issue 66, and an endgame for the other further on down the road, he has to move them along one way or another. The Billy's storyline was interesting to me in 1987 because of its connection to Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow, who were my favorite two G.I. Joe characters. I also was curious as to how the storyline involving Fred stepping into Cobra Commander's armor had been working out, and the fact that he returns to his garage in this issue suggests that Cobra Commander is definitely dead. Although that will only last for a couple of years, because, well, it's comics, right? Anyway... This is a bit of comic relief, along with some deepening of the mystery of the Ninja Clan. I'm curious as to whether or not Hama would follow up on the other people who were in that picture, except for the occasional random issue I really haven't m- read much G.I. Joe on issue number 66. I hope he does, because it's a cool mystery. I feel like he's seeding something here that's going to pay off way down the line. Now... As for the main storyline, we're headed into the gulag here, and Hama is obviously pulling from some pretty authentic sources for this story. He has the Jews being given a show trial like you would have had in Stalinist Russia or a similar state, and then they are put in a cattle car and sent out to the gulag, where the motto is, work is its own reward. It's very much something like out of uh, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn or uh, well, the train ride actually reminds me of Night by Elie Wiesel because there's this portion in Night where uh, where Auschwitz is evacuated and um, Auschwitz is evacuated by the Germans by the SS because the Russians are coming very close to the to it. If if you know anything about the end of the Second World War, the Russians pushed through its, you know, they won at Stalingrad and they just pushed themselves across Eastern Europe at a breakneck speed. And Auschwitz, the, the very infamous concentration camp, was camp, was captured by the Russians, liberated by the Russians, mostly intact. And, and it still exists today as a museum and memorial. Well, in the book, uh, Wiesel and his father are among the group of prisoners who are who are evacuated from Auschwitz and they are put on what was called the death march, and the death march is essentially running overnight through the woods uh, to a location and If you fell out of line and you slowed down and you fell behind, you were just simply shot and uh, They do the death march and they eventually get to, i think it was Glywitz and they, they are put on a cattle car trained by transported by cattle car. And there's one point in, I don't know if it's Gliwitz or another destination, where the train stops, very much like this, and not SS officials, but German workers, people on their daily commute, start throwing crusts of bread into the train. And you have all these, these the Holocaust victims, these, these Jewish, mostly Jewish prisoners who begin literally fighting each other to the death for these things. And Vizel and his father don't participate because they're too weak and they still have that shred of their humanity left. And he shows us where an uh, a older man grabs one of the crust of bread and, and somebody like basically tears him apart for it and kills him. And it's his son. And he's like, you know, I, I sit and, and as the the son is beating his father to death for this bread he's yelling you know Meyer, mera my my son i i have i save this for you i save this for you but the point is the kids the, the son is too far gone and uh then the mob descends on them and they both lay dead and the reason the german workers were throwing this in there was because it was for their amusement they found this hilarious that these less-than-human things that they saw the Jews as were fighting like wild animals. And uh, the scene... And Hama... (laughs) Hama's not going to go that dark with G.I. Joe. And what he does is he has stalker take command and have everyone get their portion of food complete uh, with a line about how this preserves self-respect and humanity. And at 10 years old, 9 years old, I didn't, you know, understand any of that. At nearly 40, I totally do because I've read Night many, 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 many times. So I automatically go to that. And i got to say, for a comic book that is being sold to mainly kids, this actually is a pretty heavy scene. And I think it's one that, that like I said, it went over my head when I was younger. I had no context for anything that was going on here. I, I knew that bad guys had captured the Joes, and getting them rescued was going to require an unauthorized covert mission. Nazi cha- concentration camps, Soviet gulags. These things were what I little, knew little to nothing about at nine years old, and I honestly wouldn't know a lot about until I read those memoirs Night and One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. So Larry Hama is actually taking quite a bit of a chance here and I think it worked and it didn't work. It worked in the sense that 30 years later I see these as really well-written scenes that do add some serious dramatic tension to a storyline that's already tense. 30 years ago it didn't work because it went completely over my head. It's not to say that this issue was a dud by any means. It provides. More complication, it moves things along, and it makes me want to pick up the next issue. In fact, I'd say that the only downside to this comic is that the artwork does leave something to be desired. Arvell Jones and William Johnson are, I guess, workmanlike would be the best way to put it. It's not terrible, but it's not great, and I found myself wishing that another artist would have been working on the book. Arville Jones was the name I actually recognized from past issues of All-Star Squadron. William Johnson had a short run on Daredevil and is only one of their credit after this. It's serviceable, but I think the seriousness of what's going on in some of these scenes is a little lost. Ron Wagner will return on pencils after this. And so I wonder what he or Herb Trimpy would have done. And hey, maybe I'm spoiled because one of the other times I tackled a mainstream comic that had prison concentration camp stuff uh, that I thought was had incredible art was during the Time and Time Again storyline back in the Superman books in the early 1990s. And the artist that handled that, I'm pretty sure, was Jerry Ordway. So if that's my point of reference for something like that, it's really hard to compete with Jerry Ordway. Like I said... This isn't like one of those 90s comics that was like so awful, where awful 90s artwork just ruins any chance that this had as a solid story. It just downgrades the story a little bit. But thankfully, like I said, Ron Wagner takes over with issue 63, and he really was a solid G.I. Joe artist of this era. So I'm looking forward to the next issue. And that'll be in about a month.
1: Right now, I'm going to take a break. Do you have unexplained mood swings? Do you have difficulty communicating with others? Do you exert a fishy odor? Do you experience undue aversion to flames or revulsion of bonfires? Have you suffered from long periods of amnesia or unexplained blackouts? Do you like to toot your own horn, speak of yourself in Shakespearean tones, or sound like Dean Warmer in Animal House? Are you a sociopath? Have you senselessly slaughtered innocent undersea creatures? Is your family tired of every vacation having to be to the beach or on a cruise ship? Do you have a secret collection of green fish scale speedos? Then you may identify with the subject of our new podcast, Imperious Rex, Confessions of a Serial Surface Invader. Longer than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. The nose of the river, of the deep, will be wearing the of Atlantis is the Prince of the Deep. Join us each week as we review the next installment from Prince Namor, The True Submariner's Adventures in Tales to Astonish, starting with the quest in issue 70 and moving forward through the Silver Age of Marvel Comics. Check out our blog at serialsurfaceinvaders.tumblr.com for a new show every two weeks or so and a steady stream of ridiculous aquatic content. And please, if any five or more of the above conditions apply to you, seek professional help.
0: The title of this episode actually is a personal reference. I thought I'd use it for today's segment. So Amanda and I play Trivia Pursuit, and we dominate my sister and my brother-in-law on a fairly regular basis. Years ago, when we first moved to Charlottesville, we were living in a really crappy apartment. We had no jobs and very little money we played play Trivial Pursuit and other board games when we weren't watching TV, and the game we played most often was that original Genus edition, which is from the early 1980s. So one night we're playing, and she gets all six wedges, and she goes back into the hub, so she gets the last question. And I start to speak, and I think the, ca- the category was history, and she's I start to go for it and, and, and ask the question, and she blurts out, oh my god, this is going to be some Russian gulag bullshit.'" And I look at the question, and I realize that she is exactly right. It was a question about Alexander Solzhenitsyn and gulags. And um, I just start laughing my ass off. And I was just, like, giving her, I read the question. I couldn't barely get through the question. And she won. And since then, some oddly impossible category or question, uh, either in Trivial Pursuit or on Jeopardy or whatever, is something that we refer to as Russian gulag bullshit. Trivia Pursuit always had a ton of questions that dealt with the Soviet Union, especially during the 1980s, and it always seemed that in card sets through the 90s and 2000s, there was a topic that kind of like dominated Seinfeld, for instance. But what I love is that much like classic games of the past, the premise of Trivial Pursuit really hasn't changed. You're still racing around a board collecting wedges, and no, I never called them pieces of pie. I referred to them as wedges. And whoever gets all the wedges and answers the question back in the hub wins. I mean, this is this is the way it's been played since my parents started playing it in nineteen eighty two to eighty three. And my parents did latch onto it pretty early. They had the Genus edition right around the time it came out. In fact, that's their copy that I have. They also had a couple of card sets. Uh, they had the RPM no, the baby boomer edition, not the RPM edition. They had the baby boomer edition, and then they got me the young players edition at one point and whenever they had people over for a holiday like uh july 4th labor day or whatever uh they would play it but they i don't think they ever actually played with the board what they would do is they would just get teams out and they would go for points and the first person the first people to certain amounts of points won probably to make it go a little quicker but as a kid who loved playing games i really really wanted an adult game Uh, you know i wanted in on that Uh, and that's why i got so attached that uh to the young players edition and then to trivia pursue proper over the years, and it's why I have something along the lines of 12 or 13 different versions of the game at my house. But it's not just a game, uh, it's trivia that I'm a fan of in general, both competitively and in everyday life. I've always been pretty curious about stuff. Uh, I do read my fair share of nonfiction, especially in subjects like history. And I guess on some level, it's because I want to be a more informed citizen. But on another level, I want to fill in the gaps of my own education. It's not to say I received a bad education, but being a teacher now myself, I know the restraints that are put on teachers, especially in fact-heavy disciplines like social studies or science. The saying is that a lot of curriculum in kindergarten through 12, the K-12 area, is a mile wide and an inch deep. And personally, I think that this is true even more than some of the political arguments I've heard on both sides. Although there is something to be said about the way partisan politics has attempted to influence education in the past. But that's what this podcast or even this story is about. Because really, the one thing for me has been that if I find a topic interesting, I dive into it. Although, since I was a good student, I was never one to discard topics I didn't find very interesting. This is probably why my strongest area in the Trivia Pursuit categories: Original Version is yellow, or history, and Amanda's is brown, or the arts and letters, which is, or arts and literature, I think it's what it was, which is the one that I remember used to kill everybody, so much so that eventually Trivial Pursuit actually got rid of the category a number of years ago. Uh, That was kind of a shame when you think about it, because one of the things that was great about Trivial Pursuit was how hard it could be. And I think this is why I get so uppity about stuff like, I don't know, bar trivia, because I'm the type of person who hates when people cheat on stuff like this. Granted, I haven't done bar trivia in years because, well, I've got way too much going. It's just one of those things I don't have the time for. But I get annoyed when someone uses the phrase, you know, just Google it in the place of, oh, I don't know, just knowing stuff. Not because I like showing off how much I know, but... I've always found a certain amount of pride in learning, retaining, and knowing things. No matter what, well, how trivial it is. So the moral of the story is, you want to challenge me in trivia Pursuit, come at me, bro. And uh, don't Google and bar trivia. There's more satisfaction in winning clean. And that'll do it. I'll be back next time with not one but two comics. That'll be Transformers number 31 and The Punisher number two. Until then, please leave comments on the show notes, the blog, or the Facebook page, or you can message me on Facebook. Uh, you can leave a review on iTunes, and you can always email me at popcultureaffidavit@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'll be back with those comics, and until then. Thanks for listening and take care.